The pocketbook says, my money is the key to happiness. It's the key to power. It's the key to peace. It's the key to success. It's the key to capitalism. It's the key to producing purpose. And it's the key to finding love. That's my money. I wonder, do you know it? My money is a supreme money. No debased deceiver can debunk its buying power. It puts bread on the table, it makes me feel stable. It's the core of consumerism. It is beyond criticism. It has no euphemisms. Do you know it? It wakes me up in the morning and it keeps me up at night. It is the reward that I hoard. It dictates my day, it divides my attention. It's the big Benjamin, it's the cherished cheese, it's the green gravy, it's the lean lettuce. I wonder if you know it today. It has motivated every great person in all of mankind. It is incorruptible. It is indestructible. It is the translation of technology. It is the prescription of the powerful. It makes my heart appease. And it's the only thing that puts me at ease. Do I want more of it? Yes, please. I wish I could describe it to you yet. It's uncomfortable. It's uncontrollable. You can't get it out of your mind. You can't get it without demand. Without it, you can't get by. You can't buy without it. The world can't function without it, and it lasts for all eternity. Yes, yes, <laughs> that's my money. Go ahead and clap your hands if you need to, because that's my money. That's my money. Well, that's not the kind of thing you typically expect to hear in church, it does, is it? Uh, the reason why we showed you that is, is I wanted you to see a contrast today. That's what I'm hoping you'll see, a contrast between our culture and God. Our culture says a lot of the truths, now that it was spoken in hyperbole in the video, but a lot of the truths that you hear there, the misfortune is that a lot of people believe that the more money you have, the happier you'll be. And the Bible stands in stark contrast to that. So in order to help us understand that, I'd like for you to take your Bibles, if you have them, and go to Luke chapter 12, and if not, on the screen behind me, or on your trusty little iPhone or Droid, uh, if you're not cool with your Droid. So, um, sorry, just got that little slam in there, just a little bit. Um, but, but go ahead and, and get to this passage, because we're going to talk pretty seriously about this idea of money. Now, here's why we're doing this. Because Jesus understood something pretty powerful. He knew that the idea of money is the single biggest competitor for your heart and mine over against God's agenda for us. And so we're going to talk honestly about it. Nobody that handles God's word honestly and fairly can avoid this topic. Because Jesus, by the way, talked about it 25% of the time. Of all the material we have about him in the Bible, 25% of it he's trying to deal with this issue of money and what's going on in our hearts with money. Over 800 passages in the Old and New Testament deal with this. Now, if you go to a church that doesn't talk about money with some regularity, they're not rightly dividing God's word, which makes them honestly not doing their full job. So we're going to look at it honestly today, and I want to help you understand something. I want you to understand a theology of money or a philosophy of money. It's a way of understanding it and categorizing it that I think will lead to freedom. And to help us get started on that, I want to take you to an episode in the life of Jesus. Now, everywhere he went, people followed him. He had powerful teaching. 
This guy spoke as one with authority. And when people will hear his words, it was like the chains being broken off their life. People were healed. Powerful teaching. He spoke to God like he knew him. And on occasion, he spoke about God like he was God. Powerful. And the crowds followed him. It was like he had a mega church just following him. Thousands of people all through the desert. All through that land in Judea, in the hillside, down by the lake, that's where they were. And on this particular occasion, in Luke chapter 12, what's going on is he's trying to teach the congregation, the crowd, and say to them these ideas. Now what happens in this life is important, he says, but what's going to happen in the life to come is so much more important. And what you have going on right here in your life, that's a big deal. But what's going on inside of you is a much bigger deal. And he's trying to help people not be afraid of life. So he says, don't be afraid of people that can take away your provision. Don't be afraid of people that can even take away your body. No, have a right perspective on God's role and understand that if God wanted to, he could take away your body and your soul and make you spend eternity in hell. That's the kind of power he has. And all all of that language, what he's wanting to do is get people to understand how important the spiritual side of life on this earth is. But not all the crowd is going to get it. They're not all going to understand. In fact, in chapter 12, around verse 13, Johnny, his name's not in the Bible, it's what I call him, because when I was in school, there was a kid named Johnny that did the same thing this guy's going to do. The teacher would say to us when I was in school, here's your homework assignment. It's page 322 through 328 in your social studies book. You're going to answer the eight questions on the end of that reading. And then no sooner than she would get it out of his mouth, he'd throw his hands up and he would say, what's the homework? You, you went to school with that guy too, right? Didn't you? Uh, were you that guy? Tell the truth. Were you that guy? Yeah, it's okay. I've been that guy too. It's totally fine. Well, that's exactly what's going to happen here. Jesus has been talking about the serious stuff, the important stuff, the first things, first kinds of stuff. And Johnny raises his hand in verse 13, and here's what our Bible says. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide inheritance with me. Now, let me put this in perspective. Jesus has been saying what's on this life is important, but it's not near as important as what's going to happen up here. And all the stuff around you, your money and your houses, it's important, but it's not near as important as what's going on here. And as soon as he said that, somebody says, teacher, Jesus, make my brother give me half the inheritance. He like totally misses the deal. And Jesus is going to school him. Jesus is going to take him to school and teach him a theology or a philosophy about money in hopes that this guy, and then us of course as well, will understand God's understanding. We'd have God's wisdom on this issue of money. Money and wealth. When I talk about that today, I'm talking about all things around money. Your aggregate collective wealth. Your credit cards, your debit cards, your cash, your income, your house, your inheritance, your vehicles, your stuff, all of that stuff. It's a mega theme in the Bible. The Bible treats it differently than our culture does. Our culture, in fact, says, get more. Get more. Do all you can to hoard and hold and enjoy. After all, you deserve it. And God looks down and says, there might be a better way to understand this stuff. A way that doesn't lead to the shackles of debt. A way that doesn't lead to the crowding out of your heart of God's work, but a way that actually leads to life and freedom. Now, here's the deal, friends. My heart for you today. I know a lot of you don't know me. A lot of you do. And those who know me, I think you'll give me a buy on this. 
Those that don't, let me just tell you where I'm going and where I'm coming from. My heart on this today as a pastor trying to rightly divide God's word is not to get you to give more money, although honestly, some of you probably need to because it's an issue of a worship you have between you and the Lord. My heart for you today is not that. My heart is freedom for you. See, I have watched in my role as a teacher, my role as a family member, my role as a pastor, I've watched people get the wrong priorities aligned in their hearts and shipwreck so many things going on in their life. By a show of hands, how many of you in the room today would say you know a family that was destroyed, a love that was undercut because somebody had a covetous or a greedy heart maybe when somebody else passed away and they were trying to divide the will and you saw that disintegrate the family relationship. You ever seen that? Yeah. See, it's common here, friends. What this guy's talking about is a common experience. And it reveals, it's like putting an x-ray on the values of your heart. And it doesn't take a radiologist to read this x-ray. All we have to do is pause long enough and ask God to give us his insight. And we can begin to understand what God's idea about money and how it stands in stark contrast to the world. No, I want you to be free today. And if it's not for you, I want you to take this message, put it down deep in your heart, put it in the back of your psyche, because God's going to give you an opportunity to speak life and freedom into people's lives as a result of what we're going to talk about today. Now, you may not know this, but this idea of money isn't just an idea that was talked about in the Bible. All throughout church history, people have talked about this idea. And we come to today, 2011, and there's a great debate raging in the greater church world about money. Now, you may not even know this, so let me catch you up to speed. See, there are a lot of Christians who have what is called a prosperity theology, and they say this, that if you really follow Jesus, what he wants for you is for you to be rich. And if you're rich, it's a sign of God's blessing on your life. And if you're not rich, it's probably a result of a lack of faith or sin and probably a combination of both. So what you need to do today is sow your seed of faith and God will rain into your bosom a gift that you cannot contain, pressed down, shaken together. Hallelujah. That's kind of the way it rolls. All right. That's called prosperity. I got into the zone really quick on that. Did you see that? I mean, that's called prosperity theology. And then there's the other side that says, oh no, Jesus was poor. And if you want to follow Jesus correctly, then you need to be poor. And the poor are elevated in the eyes of God. In fact, the most spiritual way you can be is to sell all of your possessions and go give it all to the poor and you become poor yourself. And in your physical financial poverty, you will have great wealth spiritually. And that's called poverty theology, prosperity theology and poverty theology. But in the middle, there's a different balanced, appropriate theology. See, here's the deal, friends. God's not really all that concerned about how much money you have. That may come as a shock to you. He's really not concerned. That's a secondary or a tertiary priority for him at best. What he's most concerned about for you and me is the values that have hold on our heart. It's what's going on inside of us, not what's going on in our wallets. That ma- that's not a wallet. That, that's, that matters to him. That's a sound microphone pack. Um, better planning for the props next time, all right? What he's really concerned about is what's going on in here, not in your checkbook. And so as a result of that, you have in the Bible, and it stands in stark contrast to prosperity theology and poverty theology, you have in the Bible rich people who are also very righteous. 
They are righteous. Now, the word righteous simply means they're in right standing with God. They have right behavior and right action and right standing. You have rich people in the Bible who are very righteous. And here's how they're righteous. They have a lot of money, but that's not what makes them righteous. What makes them righteous is is how they obtained their wealth is honorable. They worked hard. They invested smart. God blessed them. Things went well. Not only did they obtain their money in a righteous, honorable way that honors God and people, what they do with their money that they have honors God. They pay their bills. They give to the Lord's work. They give to the poor. They take care of their family. If they run a company, they take care of their employees. They are righteous, rich. Jesus had these people all around him in the Bible, rich people who funded the ministry. And they were generous of heart. God was first in their life. They also had a loaded checkbook. They're righteous and they're rich. So it's not about the money, it's about the heart. And we see this because also in the Bible and around us in this world today, there are people who are rich and unrighteous. They're the unrighteous rich. Maybe they're unrighteous because the way they got their money dishonors God. They rip people off, they're crook, they conduct themselves in unacceptable practices. Or maybe they're unrighteous because when they got their money, even if they got it honestly, what they do with their money doesn't honor God's priorities. They don't do anything other than spend it on themselves and their own pleasures. And they don't give to God. They don't help the poor. They're very, very selfish. God looks at those people and says, yeah, you got the cash, but the heart's not right. They're unrighteous, but rich. But it's not even about the money. It's also the fact that in the Bible, there are poor people. And there are poor people who are very righteous in the eyes of God. They're just poor. There's nothing wrong with them. They just don't have a lot of money. The way they got their money is through honest means. And they don't have a lot, but what they have, they manage well. They steward their resources the best they can, and they give to the Lord, and they help other people out, and they pay their bills, and they're generous to those around them. My family, my heritage, my background, immediately, they were poor, but they were generous. And they always had an extra seat at the table for somebody So I know, at least by extension, what it is to be poor but generous. The Bible looks at people like this and calls them the righteous poor. In fact, the Bible says of a widow lady who had very little money, but she gave out of her sacrifice to the work of the Lord, that she's the most righteous person that anybody there will have ever seen. So she was poor. Now, this stands in contrast to prosperity theology that says if you really love the Lord and he really loves you, you can drive a Cadillac or a Mercedes or a BMW. It stands in stark contrast to that. She was righteous and she was poor. But there's another side of this that we have to deal with one more thing. There are poor people who are also unrighteous because it's not about the amount of money. It's about what's going on inside of your heart that God's most concerned about. The unrighteous poor, the book of Proverbs, talks about them a lot. It describes them as the sluggard or the lazy. They don't work. They don't work smart. They don't invest. They don't save. They don't have insurance or retirement. And they would have the capability to have that, but they're too busy not managing their money and enjoying the little bit they have, and they get further and further behind. You might know somebody like this who it's not a result of bad luck, but bad choices that put them in a difficult situation. They are poor and unrighteous. And when they do get money, maybe they pay off their credit cards, but in two months, they run them back up. And so they're on a cycle of folly. The Bible looks at these people and say, yeah, you're poor, but you're unrighteous. This is not good. This is not good. The church I worked at in Tampa when I was going to seminary, 
was right off the interstate, and so we would regularly get homeless people that would come by, and I was involved in our benevolence ministry. And our guiding principle in our benevolence ministry was to always honor the dignity of the person, because when you're down on your luck, at least we can honor you as an individual. And so we would get people who had tragic situations come through our door, and we would be very generous to them, and we would lift them up and speak honor over them and help them out practically. And when somebody would come through the door and we would do the little initial you know, evaluation of how we could help and where they are, it became very clear there was really two big camps. There were people that were poor because of no choice of their own, a mental disease potentially, or some tragic situation over which they had no control. Those are the people you loved to help, just naturally. And then you had people that were just, well, like the guy that used to stand outside of our church, and he held up the sign that would say, I'm not going to lie to you, I just want another beer. And on occasion, about once a month, he'd come through our doors. Now, he needed help, but the Bible would look at him and say that he was unrighteous poor. Now, maybe we still need to help him, but what we can't do is say he was poor just like Jesus. Now, Jesus was righteous poor. He wasn't unrighteous poor. And in some circles in the church, there's a poverty theology that says, hey, it's all about poor people, but not so in the Bible. In the Bible, it's all about the condition of the heart. And so when churches focus on money in terms of social justice and don't go for the real issues of the heart, they're not preaching the gospel. And when they only talk about the heart and don't help people out practically, they're not really doing the full mission of Jesus. All of that to say that when we come to Luke chapter 12, what we're going to see is an experience of a guy who is unrighteous and rich. And he gets his wealth in honorable ways. He earns it. His crops produce a lot of stuff. He's a good farmer. But what he does with it is going to be his downfall. And so, picking up again with verse 13, Johnny in the back of the room saying, all right, I know you're talking about important stuff, Jesus, but make my brother give me half of the inheritance. Here's what it says. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? At a time when they should be relying on each other and growing in love and coming together as a family to overcome this common obstacle, they're being driven apart. So Jesus said to them, to the crowd and to that man and to us, now here's where it gets serious. This is where we begin to get the heart of Jesus on this matter. And this is my heart for you as well, that we would understand his words and heed his warning. He says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The abundance of his possessions. Jesus is basically going to give three scenarios here by which we can look at our lives and know the place that money has in our hearts. These three questions, these either-or scenarios will reveal to us, like a microscope, what's really going on inside. And in the first few verses we read, it's the basic issue between whether you're going to covet or be content with what you have. I ask you, how many of you have seen coveting and greed destroy families at a time of a will and the loss of a family member? It's very common. But it's not the only place that coveting happens. It happens every day all around us. And in our American culture with all the advertisements, which advertisements are simply designed to make us want what we don't have, the newest and the best model, coveting is rampant in our world. In fact, the, the statistics are these, that on our credit cards, the average American family has $7,000 worth of consumer debt. Typically buying things they don't need 
things they want, which is called coveting. It's not a word we like to talk a lot about, but Jesus really isn't in the business of making us feel great. What he's in the business of doing is telling us the truth and giving us an opportunity to be free. And sometimes to do that, he has to talk to us about things that we may not choose to want to hear. Who is the average person in America that has that kind of debt? Who's most likely in America to be upside down on their credit cards? Young single ladies, young single adults who are female. I don't know exactly why that is. I don't know if it's harder for them to make their way. I don't know if they're buying clothes. And I know that's sexist. Save the email. I don't know, don't, know, don't know what it is, but they seem to be more susceptible statistically. And the book of Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, which is in the Ten Commandments, like the big ten, the final one is, you shall not covet. Now, the prognosticators who look at the scriptures, the theologians, specifically Martin Luther, back at the turn of the Protestant Reformation, he looked at this group of Ten Commandments and he said the tenth one is kind of like a summary commandment that covers them all. If you can keep your heart from coveting, guess what? You probably aren't going to steal. And if you can keep your heart from coveting, you're probably not going to bear false witness against your neighbor so that you can somehow get more out of them. You're probably not going to murder, or at least it's going to significantly reduce. And you probably don't even have to be told about having God first in his place, uh, you know, worship the Lord above all things else, because he's going to have first place in your life, and all the other stuff in life is going to come second, third, fourth, and fifth. So for him, the 10th commandment was the overarching commandment. Let's just look at that commandment for just a second. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Now, I have to stop here. How many of you have seen MTV Cribs? Raise your hand. Okay, there's more of you. It's okay. You can come as you are here, friends. It's okay. A lot of us have seen that. And if not that, you've seen other shows that talk about the big houses. I love watching Cribs. I do. In fact, the other day, there was a basketball star in there, and the man was loaded. I mean, you know, gold-plated um, faucets in the bathroom. I mean, that's just 24 karat gold in the bathroom. He, he had a basketball goal installed in his bathroom. He could sit on the toilet and shoot hoops. I'm thinking, I watched it for a while. I'm thinking, I need one of those, and I don't even like basketball. I mean, I'm short. Look at me. I can't stand the game. But I wanted, after watching that show, I wanted some of that. And the Lord comes to us and he says, Don't covet your neighbor's house. Real estate agents will tell you this that when a house goes on the market and they have an open house, sometimes the first several people that come through that open house are not prospective buyers, they're neighbors. You know what we're doing? We're looking to see how nice your house is in comparison to ours. I've done it, and many of you have in here too as well. You've done it. We walk through the house and we think, oh, that's nice. I like that. Right now, I'm a sucker for granite countertops. I want granite countertops. So bad. I don't have grounded countertops in my house at all. And I feel like the Lord would like me to have those. <laughs> so I told my wife the other day, I'm pretty sure that when Jesus died and was put in the tomb and they rolled the stone in front of him, it was made out of granite. And if we could buy granite countertops, every time I used them, I would be reminded of the resurrection of our Lord. <laughs> I need some granite countertops. And the Lord comes to us and he says, now don't covet your neighbor's house. Now listen to this next one. He says, don't covet your neighbor's wife. Oh, wouldn't that have saved a lot of trouble in our world today? Don't covet your neighbor's wife or his servant, his male servant, his female servant, or his ox. Now, we don't have ox today, but that'd be like his tools, his truck or his tools. I am a sucker for tools. Can, can you get a picture here of me? I am a sucker for anything I don't have. I am. 
If I go in your garage and you have better tools than me, I'm going to pray that you begin to like me more and somehow begin to give me those tools. I like power tools. I like the expensive ones. Don't buy me the cheap green ones. I want the red or the orange or the black ones or the yellow ones, DeWalt. I like DeWalt. I like name brand tools. I don't care if your saw cuts as good as the other one. I want one with a logo on it that everybody knows costs more. I'm only halfway kidding. It's the truth. Don't covet his tools or his truck. Don't cover his donkey. That would be his car, maybe his Jeep. Don't covet those things. And then it says, or anything that is your neighbor's. Because the author of the Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and recording for us these Ten Commandments, knew that coveting is at the core of so many issues. And what's going on in coveting? Well, in coveting, we're not being content with what God's given us. Now, coveting is different than God putting a sense of disquietness in your life and calling you to go for more. Coveting isn't saying, I have no ambition. What it's saying is, is my ambition is not the most important thing in my life. And getting more is not what I'm about. And my identity isn't found in those things. My identity is found in Christ. And whatever station I am in, I will be complete. And I will be content. And I will be grateful there. You want to know why American people in our culture are some of the most blessed and least grateful people on the face of this earth and all of human history? It's because we have a coveting heart. When you look at this issue of coveting versus contentment, it runs the core. Jesus knows it's right at the issue. So he looks at this guy that doesn't get it. He says, now be on your guard. Your life's value isn't measured by how much you acquire. Don't fall into that trap. You believe that lie, all kinds of misfortune are coming your way. And then he picks up in verse 16, there in the story, and he begins to tell them a parable. And in this parable, he's going to unpack a simple idea that coveting or really greed is idol worship. Now, we don't talk a lot about idols around here anymore, but an idol is really anything that stands itself and takes the place of God in your life. That's why the first couple commandments deal with having God first and then don't make any images of him, but worship him purely in spirit and in truth. One of my favorite authors, a guy by the name of Tim Keller, says that there are many kinds of idols at work in our world today. There are surface idols and the real deep idols. See, on the surface, the idol we're talking about here is money and possessions, getting a lot of stuff. But underneath that, there's some deeper things going on. See, some of us like stuff and we have a greedy, covetous heart because at the root, there's an idol of status that is at work in us. We really believe that our identity is rooted Not in the grace of God and not what he says about us, but in the kind of house we live in, in the neighborhood we live in, whose name is on my underwear. We believe those kinds of things determine our status. And they don't. But there's an idol of status at work in us, and so we hoard and we we spend often more than we have, and the shackles of slavery to this issue get put on our wrists, all because we're worshiping a false god a God of status. The truth of the matter is, listen to me, congregation. Your identity and your value as a human being is not found in whose name is on your underwear and what logo is on your tools and how big your house is and what your address is. Your identity completely is found in Christ. And he called you and made you in his image and gave his life for you. I want my kids to understand this and it's hard because I haven't fully grasped it and lived it consistently. 
And the culture is never, ever going to tell them that their value and worth is not in their stuff, but in their God. No, what the culture is going to do is instead offer an idol of status that says, wear the right sunglasses, drive the right car, wear your clothes in the right way with the right logos, the right perfume or cologne, go to the right schools, live in the right neighborhoods, have the right friends, and your status will determine your value. And people check out of life all, and, and they make bad decisions around all kinds of important things because God is not first in their life, instead their status is. And people are in cycles of debt over and over again because of this. And some people have money and possessions not because they want status, but because they want security. They don't take God at his word where he says he'll supply. And they go beyond the normal wise thing that the Bible teaches us to do, to put away some for a rainy day, to set aside an emergency fund, as Dave Ramsey would call it, to spend within our means, they go way beyond that and they hoard more and more cash. Maybe they drive a beater truck and you know, wear secondhand clothes and, and look like a hermit. You've seen these stories, right? And somebody dies and then they go into the house and they discover they've got millions of dollars. Have you, you heard stories like this? And everybody's like, him, he, I thought he was poor. Well, what's that about? That's about the idol of security at work saying, I'm gonna take care of myself and money is my security. And God says that's a false idol. And when you have false idols on the throne of your heart, it enslaves you. Some people don't have the idol of status or security. They have the idol of pleasure. And I see this one at work in our culture significantly. It's a deep idol. It's not a surface idol. It's more than just, I want to be happy. It's if I get enough stuff, I can be happy. And just one more thing. I see this tendency in my kids. And my kids aren't idol worshipers, but it's the kind of thing we're trying to work out of their lives and develop them as parents as we're supposed to do. If one of them gets something, the other ones have to get something just to have something. It doesn't matter what the something is. Of course, it also has to cost the same price. And if not, they feel somewhat gypped. It doesn't matter if son A saved up his money and spent. Son B is going to feel a sense of loss because he didn't get the same thing. And we call that foolishness in the heart of a child, but it's not just in children, is it really? I mean, when your neighbor drives up in a brand new car with heated seats, like both front seats are heated, one to keep his butt warm and the other one, I guess, to toast his bread on the way to work. I don't know what that's for. But, and, and you go over and look at the car. I mean, do you feel it? Do you feel it rising up in you that, that what would like to take the throne of your heart? I, I do. I do. It's a, it's a life of ease and pleasure and I just want to be comfortable. It's a deep idol. And God says, will you be coveting or will you be content? Now, contentment if you have that, you can have lots of wealth and be fine. You can, have, you can be poor and not have lots of money, but if you're content, you can be fine. Here's the next thing that Jesus says in verse 16. Let's read it. And he told him this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store for myself my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This is not a good day, by the way. When God looks at somebody and says, you fool, that's a serious indictment. It cuts not just to you like you made a silly decision because you didn't have all the facts. We've been there. That's not what the Bible calls a fool. The fool in the Bible is the person who has the opportunity to embrace truth, but they turn their back on it. And they go in a different direction. The Bible looks at those people and says, you're a fool. I, I didn't say that. That's in your scriptures. You fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. 
then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? In this story, Jesus kills him. He's tired of him. He takes him out. Now, don't make a mistake. This is, of course, hyperbole, but it's also very serious because what's happening in the story is the, die, the guy dies physically, but what happens everywhere around us in our culture, people are dead on the inside, and the spiritual life God wants to breathe into them can't be breathed into them and take up residence because something else is already sitting on the throne of their heart. You fool. This is going to destroy your life. Now, what did he do wrong? All that happened was he had a, a bumper crop and, and, his, and he had so much he just wanted to take care of himself. But let's look at what was really going on here. Apparently, this guy was an unrighteous rich person who made his money honestly, but what he did with his money was the problem. The money was overflowing. He had more than he needed. His bills were paid, his retirement account was knocked out, his life insurance was covered, his emergency fund was covered. He had done all that was necessary to cover what it means to be a good steward, and beyond that, he had lots of jack. He was going to make it through the winter. And then he says, I'm going to build more barns, bigger barns, to take care of my stuff. Nowhere in this is there a single bit of language about God or God's priority. In fact, the trinity he worships is I, me, mine. Me, myself, and I. I'm going to, I'm going to. I said to myself, I said to myself, they are mine, they are mine. And the whole idea that the blessings in his life are a gift from God on loan is completely devoid. It wasn't how he got his money that was the problem. It wasn't that he was rich. It's that what he did with his cash made him in the category of unrighteous rich. Historically and globally, friends, we are the rich people in the world. Have you ever traveled outside of our country? And I'm not talking about like going to Europe. I'm talking about like, have you ever been to like Africa? Central America. Have you ever seen pictures of that stuff? This guy wanted to build bigger barns. And you compare that to what goes on in the world. If Jesus were to walk off streets, he would say to the average American, you are the rich. Now, are you the righteous rich? Or are you the unrighteous rich? In 1950, the average American home was 1,000 square feet. I lived in a home about that size with four kids and one bathroom and three bedrooms. And you know what? We were fine and we were close and to this day, my family is as tight as we can be. And I remember driving to my friend's house when I got in high school and seeing their much bigger houses and thinking, man, that would be nice. And I remember like going home and thinking, oh, if I could only have, and if I could only dress, and if I could only drive. And now I look where I am and where my relationship with my family is, and in uh, hindsight, I have a little bit better perspective. Yeah, in 1950, the average home was 1,000 square feet. In 1970, it was 1,500 square feet. In 2000, the average home in America is 2,200 square feet. Is there anything wrong with a big house? Absolutely not. But when we are pressed to build bigger and bigger, and we don't question what's going on, we're headed in the wrong direction with money and the Lord. So in the last 30 years, the average family size is down 25% and the average house is up 50%. I've been susceptible to that too. I'm not throwing stones. Bigger barns. No sin in bigger barns. But when we build bigger barns and don't pay attention to the call of God in our life as it relates to money, like taking care of the poor, asking ourselves tough questions, do we need or want this? asking where our motivation for it is coming from, God says we've opened up our hearts to have the wrong values at work. We are on our way, if we're not careful, to God looking over us and calling us, it doesn't sound good, but calling us the fool. So this guy says to himself, it's all me, it's all mine. I'm going to do it all. 
Now let me stand in stark contrast to this story, another story. A guy by the name of Pastor Rick Warren. Many of you have read his book, The Purpose Driven Life. I met him briefly once, but my mentor is a good friend of Rick. Worked for him on his staff, knows him quite well. So I knew this about Rick before it kind of went public, but here's what Rick Warren did. He wrote the single best-selling English book of all of human history outside of the Bible, like eight times over the next bestseller. He made a ton of money. I mean a ton of money. He had no idea that was going to happen. He just wrote a book that was close to his heart, and God blessed it, and people bought it, and they're still buying it. It's in the top 25 right now. It's called The Purpose Driven Life. If you haven't read it, you might want to pick that up. So what happened was when the money started rolling in, he began to question what effect this money was going to have on his life. So what he did is he sat down and figured up how much money he had made from Saddleback Church over the last 25 years of his employment from day one up to the current day. And he wrote a check back to the church for the entire amount of money they had ever paid him. And he said, for the rest of my life, I'll work for here for free. Now that sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? Now beyond that, what he did is he decided he was going to reverse tithe. He was going to give away 90% of his money to the work of the Lord and live on 10%. Now, let's be clear. His 10% is better than my 100%. Absolutely. And probably better than yours too. But I don't think God's going to look at him and call him unrighteous rich. I don't think God's going to be upset if he buys a car with double heated seats because he's doing all he can. He's aggressive in putting God first here. See, this is the challenge with richness. Once we have it, we hoard it. We want to keep it. We don't want to press in. Some of you hear that story and you say, Ben, if that were to happen to me, I'd give God that kind of money. You're like me. I've done it too. God, here's $5. I'm buying this lottery ticket. If, if I hit the numbers, Lord, if you'll let me, you can have 50%. That's pretty generous on my part, isn't it? I'm a, I mean, do you see how spiritual I am? There have been days I've promised him 80 and I just take the 20. You're chuckling. Some of you have done the same thing, you hypocrites. I know you have. <laughs> You've said, when it turns around, I'll do it. But here's what the Bible says. If you're not faithful in small things, you won't be faithful in big things. And further, it goes on to say that if we're not faithful in the small, he will not elevate us to the great. And he promises us that if we're faithful in the small, he will give us more. Now, I don't know what more looks like in your life, but it's a promise from God that I'm banking on. I'm not banking on it as my financial plan. I'm just taking him at his word. So is it coveting or is it contentment? Are we going to be foolish like this guy or are we going to be faithful? That is the second question. Foolish or faithful? And the final question in our last couple of minutes together is, are we going to make money our God or are we going to see our money as a gift from God and the gifts we can give to God? Look at this last verse of this, par- this parable. God said to him, you know, who's going to get what's been prepared, that you've prepared for yourself? And then verse 21, and this is how it will be For whoever, that's me and you, stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. We're going to be called foolish. Now, how do you be rich towards God? Well, this is the beautiful part of the story. See, each time we blow it, make sin, mess up, the Bible says that we accumulate a sin debt against God. A sin debt. Every lie, every misspoken word, every action, every thought, God keeps account. And our debt piles up. And then the Bible says that God sent Jesus to be our ransom to pay for our sin debt so that we could be rich towards God. Our spiritual condition can be rich with the Lord. And what we have to do is accept the payment of Jesus that he wrote that check in his own blood by dying on the cross and being resurrected 
that when we accept that check for the payment of our sin penalty that is greater than anyone in this room would ever be able to pay for themselves, we can be rich towards God spiritually. And if you haven't had that happen in your life, if you haven't received the grace of Jesus and begun to walk with him, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in a few minutes. You can be rich to the Lord that way. But there's another way. We can be rich to the Lord financially. What I mean by that is, is being righteous with our wealth, whether we're poor or whether we're rich. Giving to the Lord, giving to poor people. Managing our lives, paying our bills, not being consumed with our debt. We can be both rich to the Lord spiritually, and we can be rich to the Lord financially. This is the problem with that guy. It wasn't that he had a lot. He had no room for God. This is the challenge with wealth in our culture. It will squeeze out our need for the Lord. That's why reaching people in the suburbs are tough, because very few of us need him. We're not aware of that. We have everything we would ever want and more. We have thrones in our house. They're called toilets. We can sit on them. And anything bad in our life, one touch of a button is flushed away. I'm exaggerating just a little bit, but you understand, nowhere else in the world is this the reality, really. We're special. And we have an opportunity to honor God fully with our spiritual lives and our financial lives. And if we don't attend to both, money and greed and coveting will crowd out God. And I don't want that for you. See, we're here as a church to encourage the message of Jesus. We're not here to raise offerings, although that's necessary. And we're not here to take your money. All of us, though, need to process what God would have us do with this kind of stuff. What is your personal theology of money? What hold is it going to have over your life? Are you a righteous rich person or are you a righteous poor person? It really doesn't matter how much you have. It matters the place that God has in the middle of all that. So let's do this together. Let's take our connect cards and take a few steps forward as a congregation. I want you to consider this. I want you to consider next step A for some folks in the room. And it's very simple. That you would like to receive the payment for your sin that Jesus offered on the cross. He wrote that check with his blood, signed his own name, so that you and I could be rich spiritually with the Lord. Listen, if you've never done that, I encourage you to do that. It's a powerful, marvelous gift. It doesn't cost you anything. You commit your life to him. You try to follow him. He doesn't ask for perfection. He asks you to walk humbly before him. It's a beautiful thing. The Bible says you do that this way. You acknowledge that you're not perfect, that you have a debt, and then you look at Jesus and say, I'd like you to lead. The Bible word for that is to be the Lord of my life. I want you to be in charge. I want to try to do it your way. And if you'll help me, I'll follow. If you'd like to do that in a moment, we're going to pray. And you just simply look at God in your own way. Bow your head, close your eyes, use my own words. It doesn't matter. And say, God, lead my life. I give it to you. And you can receive that kind of spiritual richness with the Lord. Here's next step B. I wonder, as I'm talking about this today, some of you are saying, yeah, Ben, that's great, but I have so much going on in my life. If you knew financially where we are, it's just bad. Let me just ask you. You know, if that happened to you because of choices you did not make, then don't feel bad. It's okay to be poor. It really is. We don't like it, but you can be right standing with God and you can have a great family and be poor. You really can. I've lived some of that. But if you made poor decisions and your own foolishness got you here, let this be a wake-up call to you. Dig yourself into the book of Proverbs. Let me buy you a copy of Dave Ramsey and put you with one of our counselors here who can help you with that. But most of all, I'm asking you to admit where you are today so that we can pray for you. Don't be so prideful here that you can't admit where you are. I want to pray for you. My heart broke for you this week. My heart broke for the people in this room that would say, I'd like to take this stuff seriously, but I'm so far in over my head. 
Man, the church does good with this kind of stuff. Check that box. We will not hound you. Ask for details. I'm going to send you a simple email that says, if you'd like to take a next step, here's how you could do it, and you're going to get our prayers. Now, don't put up next step C. I didn't have this on my original list. I added it because I felt like I wouldn't be being honest and true to the call of God if I didn't have this next step up there. It's a step that a lot of you thought I've been preaching towards the whole way, but I'm telling you it's not true. But some of us in this room aren't rich to the Lord and we're walking in disobedience with our giving. That's between you and God. I don't even care other than I care about you. So next step C is an offer for some of us, not all of us, and the cynic in the room, go ahead and get your snarl on. But here it is. Next step C, that you feel like you'd like to increase your giving to our church. Now, if you don't like that I said four corners, just strike that out on your card. But if you feel the Lord calling you to be more generous, check this box. Let us pray for you. And you go buy some food for a single mom. You write that check. You do the work and you quit spending on yourself. And you start honoring God better with your money and give to the poor and give to the Lord's work. And if you come here, we ask you to give some of that here. Because what we do around here is worth it and it's good and it's a good investment. And the next step, D. There are some of you that just need to get baptized. Jesus paid your debt. You've received his grace. You cast that check. And he'd like you to go public with the fact that you love him. And he's first in your life. And where he's not first in your life, you're making a public declaration you'd like him to be first in your life. And we'd like to celebrate that baptism with you, the grace of God at work in all of our lives. Now, you're in a room full of sinners. Some of us are saved by grace, and others of us are pre-Christian. And we're praying for you. And if today's the day when we pray in just a moment, I'd like for you to just receive his grace. Let's pray right now. Lord Jesus, God, I want to thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. God, you loved us so much that you didn't just tell us what we wanted to hear. You told us what we needed to hear. You're good like that. Oh, you're not always comfortable like that, but you're good like that. God, right now, I want to pray for those folks that are making decisions to begin to follow you with their lives. They're going to cast the check you wrote with your own life on that cross resurrected from the dead. They're going to say to themselves, to you, God, I'm a sinner. I've blown it. I have a debt of sin. And I receive your payment. Would you lead my life? God, there are some folks in this room and my heart breaks for them. And they're so upside down financially and they don't even know what to do. Some of them, they didn't make a single choice to be here. They're just on a roller coaster ride and others were just foolish. God, we invite you into the middle of those situations right now. Holy Spirit, do your work. God, we pray for those folks that have not been faithful to be generous financially with God. They've taken gifts from God, but not given any real sacrificial gifts back to him. God, help us to be honoring to you. And finally, Father, I pray for those people who need to be baptized. God, let them know how joyful it is for you to see them walk in that obedience to celebrate that they are not ashamed of you. We pray this all in the powerful name of Jesus, the strong and holy Son of God. Amen and amen. Would you stand with me? And let's worship our God.